You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Doing a special topic tonight on the question, what is the mark of the beast? Normally, I steer clear of end times, apocalyptic, prophetic teachings, but I do get this question with some frequency, and uh, my husband and I were having a conversation about it the other day, and he was really encouraging me to develop something along these lines because of a lot of headlines in the news. So I thought I would try my hand at putting something together. I know that some of you are probably going to find this approach a little bit too academic. Other people aren't going to find it very sensationalistic. Others are going to find it maybe unsatisfying, but some of you may find it actually genuinely helpful. And that is my hope. You know, there are many speculations about what the mark of the beast is. When I was a kid, there were a lot of concerns about using credit cards. Here's a little graphic that I found from another video from the over at the gotquestions.com website. They had credit cards and barcodes and, you know, a microchip. And these are kind of some of the more common theories that I've heard of. My husband saw this week on social media, some comments similar to what Jay Clemente was bringing up as vaccines being linked to a barcode. So that's a that's a newish theory that's coming up. There was a, a story uh, that my friend sent me this morning from biometricupdate.com talking about the launch of kind of a, a digital ID uh, connected to vaccines, which is probably what Jay Clemente is talking about. So there's that. Yeah, the uh, ID2020, Gates, uh, Bill Gates, there's a lot of conversations happening about Bill Gates related to the ID vaccine. I don't know a ton about it. I'm not necessarily an expert in that, and I won't be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about the mark of the beast primarily from a biblical point of view and some of the parameters of that. And then I'm sure that there will be many speculations in the chat box about what all of that means. So let's start with scripture. We're going to first look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 to 18. And this is the key passage related to the mark of the beast. And we're going to come back to Revelation 13 later and look at it in more detail. I'm just going to do the setup right now. And it, meaning the beast, this is the beast from the land, performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, which is described in the first half of chapter 13. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth in order to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refuse to worship the beast, the image to be killed. That is a very important part of uh, the clue is the worship. So you might want to circle that if you're there with your scriptures. It also forced all great, all people, great and small, rich and poor, slave and free to receive a mark on their right hands or their foreheads. So they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this is the number of the beast, the number of a man that is 666. So this is where we get the idea for the mark of the beast is this chunk of scripture here in Revelation chapter 13. So let's get into what is the book of Revelation, because before we can just dive right into 
this one section, we've got to pull back a little bit and look at the context. So this is not going to be a conversation about like reading the Bible like a newspaper. And if you're looking for something super sensationalistic, this is probably not for you. I'm going to do a conversation that is rooted and grounded in scripture. And we're going to try to unpack some of these things. Now, the type of literature of the book of Revelation is really interesting because we see in the New Testament a number of types or genres of literature. And, and the Re book of Revelation is in some epistles at the beginning. There's these letters to the churches in Revelation. It has a lot of visions, is a big chunk of the book of Revelation. But we call the overall genre of, of this book of Revelation called apocalyptic. And it is apocalyptic literature. And it is quite strange to, for us to read apocalyptic literature today. It's just not as well known today as it was back then. If you would like to know more about apocalyptic literature, I would commend to you the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Doug Stewart and Gordon Fee. That's a very helpful entry-level book in how to interpret the Bible. So it's a book that I used for... Many years when I used to teach a class on biblical interpretation, you can just go to Amazon. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And there are some very fine chapters in there. And toward the end of the book, there's a chapter on how to interpret apocalyptic literature. So that's what the book of Revelation is. Now, the date. Let's talk about the date. So there's basically two approaches to when Revelation was written. The first one is that maybe it was written under the reign of Nero. And Nero was the Caesar. He was the dictator from AD 54 to AD 68. And many Christians were killed and persecuted under Nero's reign. So there's a lot of thought that maybe that's when it was written. Another thought is that it was written under the Roman Emperor Domitian, who was a little bit later, um, AD 81 to 96. And he was also a very vigorous persecutor of Christians. Now, when we think about the, the book, it was written by the Apostle John, and it says that he was on the island of Patmos. He was in exile. And John is often associated with the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And he's writing these letters and, and these visions down for these churches in modern day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor. And he's giving them some instructions about about what's to come or what they're living under really at that time. And there was intense persecution. The question is, is which persecution was it? Was it under Nero or Domitian? That, that's really the question. But either way, the church was undergoing intense persecution at that time. Now, the book of Revelation is really a timeless message for everybody. It has a message for Christians and for non-Christians. And when my daughter was very young, we, we studied, she wanted to study the book of Daniel. And so we did that one year. Then we studied the book of Revelation together. And we got to the end. I asked her, I said, well, how would you summarize the book of Revelation in one sentence? And she said to me, it was just an absolutely perfect summary of the book. She said, it's a book of warning for non-Christians. And it's a book of promise and comfort for Christians. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great way to say it, because it is both. 
And I might add to that, it's also a book of warning for Christians not to compromise their faith. Now, in that ancient context, there were a lot of pressures on Christians to compromise their faith. There, there was membership in trade guilds. In, in other words, how they, people made their living. And they couldn't be members unless they met certain criteria. And a big part of that was worshiping Caesar and engaging in Caesar worship. And so in order to have those good credentials to be a, a, a business person in good standing, you needed to engage in Caesar worship. And there was also the pressure from the Jews. Christians were by this point seen as kind of a, a heretical offshoot of Judaism. There's religious pressure from the Jews and there's cultural pressure from the Roman government and just being a good citizen in Roman society. And so Christians find themselves in this very difficult, tight place at that time in the first century of the persecutions are coming. Christians are dying for their faith because they, they don't want to engage in Caesar worship. And they are also not going to convert back to Judaism in some cases. So this book of Revelation is very important because it gives us wisdom and insight in how to live under persecution and how to keep focused on the main thing. It's still a timeless book for us today. And it gives Christians in, I think it was a specific message to the first century Christians, but it also has a timeless message for all Christians and how to live in a time of difficulty and persecution. And we're going to get more into that toward the end of the teachings. So now let's talk a little bit as we're talking about the mark of the beast and what that is. We have to lay some additional groundwork here, and that is what I'm going to call Revelation's cast of characters. Okay, so we're going to look, start looking at some scripture passages. Now, one of the big figures in, in the book of Revelation is obviously Jesus. And Jesus is coming as a judge, and we see him coming with authority. Now, in the first coming, he also comes with authority. If you read through the book of Luke, for example, and some in Matthew and Mark as well. One of the, the key questions that the Pharisees are always asking Jesus is, by what authority do you do these things? In other words, you didn't go to the right rabbi school. You didn't go to seminary. You don't have the right training. Who was your professor? That's basically what they're asking him when they ask that question. And when Jesus responds, he often, especially in the Gospel of John, he says he's coming to represent the Father. And that's where he gets his authority. And he shows us in the Gospels that his authority over sickness and, and the, the devil, over demons, over death, and even over nature. He engages in multiplication miracles. He raises people from the dead. He himself is raised from the dead. And he does all of these things with authority. And in Matthew 28, 19, it talks about how gee, all authority under heaven has been given to him. And then he sends out his disciples. and He says, now go. And in Matthew 9 and in Luke 9 and Luke 10, his disciples go out with authority. When Jesus comes again, 
He will come with authority, but this time he will come as the judge and he will judge the world and he will separate out the wheat and the tares, these things that have been growing up side by side together. So that's the first person we have to really know about in the book of Revelation. The second one we're going to read about in Revelation chapter five, verses eight to 10 here. It's looking at the people in heaven. It says that the prayers of God's people are like incense in heaven. And they sang this song that you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you, you purchased for God persons. This is a very important point here from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign. So these are, these are priests who are kings. These are kings who are priests. These are the people of God. Okay. And they've been purchased by the blood of the lamb and they are, they belong to every tribe and every nation, every tongue. This is kind of the second part of the cast of characters, if you will, in the book of revelation, I'm going to, we says something very similar in revelation chapter seven. Again, we see a restatement here that these are people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. And we see in chapter seven in verses two to four, that these same people have a seal on their forehead. And this is a very important description. It's a very important key to unlocking the mark of the beast. It says that these people have a seal on their foreheads there in verse three, and they are the servants of God. And a similar thing is said in Revelation chapter nine, verses three to five, that there is a seal on their forehead. You can see they have the seal of God on their foreheads there in verse four. And so we want to understand that the people of God are sealed they're marked, if you will. Okay. And to some extent, they are protected from what's happening and they're definitely protected from the wrath of God. So now we're going to look at chapter 12 and this is really the turning point of the book, I think. And so I want to encourage you, you know, to take some time to read chapter 12 when you can, I'm just going to hit some highlights here. To me, this is, this is a really critical chapter in the book of, of the turning point vision. So up until now, we've really been looking at the church and heaven and Jesus returning and the warning for the churches in in the letters in chapters two and three. And then we get to chapter 12 and here's what it says. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And you have to understand this is a, this is a vision. And so if, if you know any, if you've ever studied biblical dream interpretation, that has helped me um, really have an appreciation for understanding a lot of these visions and how highly symbolic they are. Everything kind of stands for something else. Verse two, she was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns and seven crowns. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that she, so that it might devour the child the moment he was born. 
And she gave birth to a son, a male child who would rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Okay, now what in the world is going on here? The, the key to it is the prophecy there in verse five. And, and what that is talking about is it's a quote from the end of the book of Genesis about the descendant of a Judah from whom the, the Messiah would come. And I think that what this is, is a reference to the birth of Jesus. And what we see in the Old Testament, if you follow the Old Testament story, starting from Genesis chapter three, it's a story of the seed of the serpent trying to kill off the promise of the Messiah and the Messiah's promise. The promise of the Messiah is always in threat throughout the old Testament. There's all the individual stories of the old Testament. And then there's this big meta narrative story of what's going to happen to the Messiah. Will he be born or will the enemy try to, to eliminate him and, and to disqualify his line? And so you have all of these events, you, you have them being in slavery and then you have the 40 years of wandering and then you have all of the disobedience under the kings and then you have exile and then they come back to the land and they're still struggling to obey. And all of these things are weaved together by the genealogies of the line of promise. And when we get to Matthew chapter one, the very first chapter in Matthew is a genealogy. And the purpose of that is to tell us where the child comes from and that he is a descendant from the kingly line of David through Judah. And so I think that Revelation chapter 12 is a discussion about Jesus. And it's a, it's like in a nutshell, the whole story of the old Testament where the enemy is trying to kill off the Messiah. So who is this red dragon? Well, we have to keep reading in chapter 12. We find out that this is the serpent of old. We find out that he is the one who was with the woman in the garden and that he wages war against the women's offspring there in verse 17. Those who keep God's command and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So here's the turning point in the book. Now we're going to start focusing on the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So up until now, we saw Jesus coming with authority, and we saw the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit, the holy trinity. Now in, in, in chapter 12, what we see is the threat, the threat to the Messiah and the threat to God's people. And now what's going to happen is we're going to spend the next few chapters looking at the unholy trinity. So the first person in the unholy trinity, the evil trinity, is that of the dragon or Satan. And then second, we have the beast from the sea in, verse, in, in chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 8. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and he saw a beast coming out of the sea and it had 10 horns and seven heads. Again, this is all highly, highly symbolic, okay? But what's critical is verse four. The people worshiped the dragon because he had been given, he had given authority to the beast. This is very important because remember what I said earlier, that Jesus was the one who came with authority. He was the one that did signs and wonders and miracles. 
But what we see in Revelation chapter 13 now is that signs and wonders are going to happen because Satan gives authority to the beast from the sea and the beast of the earth, who is later called the false prophet. This again is the unholy trinity or the evil trinity. And so when we get down a little bit further in chapter 12, starting at verse 11, we see this second beast and he is the one who comes out of the earth there in verse 11. And he also has a weird appearance. He has two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So he speaks. He has the words in his mouth of Satan, but it exercised authority of the first beast on its behalf. And he made the inhabitants worship the first beast. So this guy's like the enforcer. He's, he's the false prophet. And it's part of this deception. And the signs and the wonders are used to deceive the people into believing in these things. So notice all of the, the religious language that's going on here. So what we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 is that the dragon is Satan. He's the serpent of old, he's called. And so he's the one who's kind of behind the scenes animating all of this. He's the one who's giving the authority. He's the counterfeit to Jesus. This is different than what LDS people say is like Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the the, the visions set up Satan as kind of the counterfeit to Jesus. And he is giving this, this authority, if you will, to the beast and the false prophet. Now, the, the beast from the sea or the false prophet seems to be the enforcer. He's the one who, who forces the people to worship the image of the beast in the beast from the sea. Now, I think that it's very important to understand this word worship. Because to me, that is a a critical part in the context of Revelation chapter 13, where it's talking about the mark of the beast. So we've had our, in our cast of characters, we had Jesus, we had the people of God, then we had the unholy Trinity. Now we've got one more group of, in our cast of characters, and that is the beast worshipers. In the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 14 Verses 9 and 10, it says this. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead. So this is after the passage I read earlier from chapter 13 about the mark of the beast. The mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink in the wine of God's fury or God's wrath, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. So this is, this is very stark language because what we see here is many of these, these things coming together. We see the mark of the beast and we also see the sign on their forehead and their hand. One other brief mention in, in Revelation 16, chapter two, about the beast worshipers. These are the people that receive the wrath of God and the full cup of his wrath is poured out against them. So how then do we begin to pull kind of all of these strings together now that we, we kind of have the the deeper context. I think 
that what we have to to think about is I'm going to put it on the word allegiance. This is the critical word. I think the critical question that we have to ask ourselves is who holds your allegiance? Is it Jesus or Caesar? And Caesar, in this case, would be the government. Now, remember at the beginning, I said that the book of Revelation was for those Christians in the first century. It was a message for them, possibly under Caesar, um, Nero, possibly under Domitian, if you accept the late date. But either way, they were a church under persecution. And this was a message for them. And the question was, is who is your allegiance going to be to? Is it Jesus or Caesar? The question is, is who do you worship? That is the critical question that we have to ask ourselves when it comes to the answering the issue of what is the mark of the beast? Because I'm not 100% sure that the first question we should ask is, you know, the physical thing of what it is. The first question we need to understand is the spiritual reality of what it is. It's a question of allegiance. It's a question of worship. There's a book that I read a couple of years ago that I found very helpful. It's a more academic book. And I don't agree with everything in the book, but it makes one very central point that I found helpful. It's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And it's kind of a different slant on the whole faith and works conversation. Again, I don't agree with everything in this book, but the central point that it's trying to make about the importance of understanding the concept of allegiance in the first century is really important to understanding salvation. That what was happening for these early Christians is when there was a call to believe in Jesus, it wasn't just merely a saying the sinner's prayer. It was a call to change their entire worldview and to change their allegiance then no longer were they going to have allegiance to the synagogue and the synagogue system for their salvation, but no longer were they going to have allegiance to Caesar and that system. Rather, they were changing their allegiance to be for Christ. And I think the question of here that's latent is, is who commands your loyalty? Who do you trust in to provide for your needs? Who are you trusting in for your salvation? Who holds your emotions? Where do your emotions get get funneled to? That is how we know who we are worshiping. Who, Who has our allegiance? Our allegiance can't simply be in words only of I'm a Christian, just in words only. We have to order our whole lives around our allegiance. This is the concept in the Gospels of obedience and holiness and that we are living a life according to the law of Christ. And so when we think about the question of allegiance and worship, who are we worshiping? I think that is the primary question we have to consider when looking at the mark of the beast, because that word worship figures so prominently in, in the book of Revelation. And so, again, those questions to ask yourself are, who commands my loyalty? Who am I most loyal to? Who, who do you think will provide for your needs? Who are you trusting in? Is it yourself? 
Is it the government? Is it God? Who do you, are you really truly trusting in to provide for your needs? Who are you trusting in for your salvation? Is it the government system? Is it, is it Jesus alone? Does he have your allegiance? What animates your emotions? What makes you feel passionate? Is it Jesus or is it the world's system? Another thing I want you to notice here is that both Christians and those who have, who belong to the beast, they're both worshipers and they both have marks on their foreheads. The mark on the forehead, I think, is symbolic for who do you belong to? Who has your allegiance? I'm not as convinced that it absolutely must be a physical thing on your forehead. It seems to be functioning in the book of Revelation in a compare and contrast sort of a way that we are supposed to compare and contrast Jesus and the dragon. Both have authority. Both receive worship. We're supposed to compare and contrast the people of God and the worshipers of the beast. Both of them worship and both of them have been marked. And so we are supposed to understand uh, that the mark is an outward expression of the inward reality of who, who has their allegiance, who are they trusting in? When we think about Romans chapter 10 verses nine to 13, for example, it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think it's, it's, and then it, verse 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The, the creed that would have been common in that culture would not to be to say that Jesus is Lord. It's to say Caesar is Lord. This is a statement of absolute allegiance. This is not just merely like going through the rote motion of saying, oh, yeah, I said Jesus is Lord when I was a kid. And so therefore I'm saved. That what salvation involves is our absolute allegiance. And saying Jesus is Lord is the equivalent of saying, I am trusting in Jesus for everything, for my entire life, not just here in this physical world, but also in the world to come. And that what we are saying in that statement is who has our allegiance? Amanda says, I've been researching today on the SBC, SBA grants to churches during the COVID crisis. So many churches are okay with taking their money. I think that that's a very thoughtful point is have we really considered what all of those impacts legally are going to be if churches take that money? Um, how will that impact our worship? Will the government then suddenly have the right to tell us how to worship? There's this idea in reformed theology called sphere sovereignty that I've found very helpful. There's different spheres of life that God has set up and Christ rules over all of them. He rules over the, the church. I'm just going to pick three church, the state and the family. The family is the most basic unit of our society. It's the man and the woman in Genesis two, making a family, multiplying, filling the earth, ruling the earth and teaching their children, according to Deuteronomy six. So, in that sphere, God sets it up and says, this is what a family is. This is how it operates. And this is the tasks of the family. Okay. 
The church is another sphere and it's supposed to preach the gospel and engage in corporate worship and church discipline and, and loving their neighbor. And, and that's its sphere. And those are its tasks. The government, according to Romans 13, it is another sphere of sovereignty. And what they do is they collect taxes. They are supposed to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And that is their sphere. But what happens when the government starts to think that they are the supreme being, that the government gives rights and the government controls the churches and how they move and what they do and what they say and how they preach the gospel or the government comes in and redefines the family or says, you can't teach children this way. You must teach them this way. That's when the state has taken over other spheres and has become God. It has put itself in the place of God. Sphere sovereignty, I think, is a helpful concept because it helps to establish boundaries. And I think that that is a biblical idea that the state is called in Romans 13 is a minister for for God. And and it, it does things on God's behalf and that Christians should obey the government. We should. But when the state becomes God and it wants to control other spheres that God has put in place, that's when it becomes problematic. And that's what we see in Acts chapter four. When Peter and John heal the the man at the temple steps in Acts chapter three, and then they are pulled into the Jewish court and they are told to stop preaching in that name, in the name of Jesus, stop preaching in that authority. And what do they tell them? They tell them, I'm sorry, but we can't do that. We're going to continue to preach in that name. So should Christians obey the government? Yes, but there are some times that we should disobey the government. And that is Romans 13 versus Acts 4. Well, how do we determine when we are supposed to disobey the government? I think a big component of that is helpful to think about sphere sovereignty. When the government overreaches And it says that it's now acting in the place of God and we're supposed to be dependent on the government instead of on God. And and it's going to redefine the family and it's going to to tell us how to teach our children. It's going to violate that sphere. It's going to tell us to not preach the gospel, not engage in corporate worship. Then it's violating those spheres of sovereignty that God has set up. And then it's an Acts 4 situation where we have to politely say, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to obey that law. So when we think about the days in which we're living in, I don't want us to overreact and call, you know, nearly everything the mark of the beast. I want us to have some clear thinking about what we're doing, though, and to understand what agreements we're making and where we're allowing the government to come in and we're giving over control and we're making the government God or we're giving up our sphere of sovereignty to them. So Amanda, I think you're raising a very important point about these small business loans. Matthew, what are your thoughts of the verses concerning if you don't have the mark, you'll be unable to buy or sell? I think that 
if the mark of the beast is also an external thing, I could see in this day and age how that that could happen. But even in the first century, there were obstacles to buying and selling for the first century Christians. Um, because if they didn't belong to these trade guilds, if they weren't citizens in good standing by engaging in Caesar worship, um, buying and selling was very difficult for them. And that was a reality. Christians have been persecuted for two millennia. If you go talk to an Egyptian Christian who's from Egypt originally, uh, you might notice that they have a tattoo on their hand. It might be a small tattoo that is either on their, their hand or on the inside of their wrist. Here's some children with this. It's a very common practice among Egyptian Christians. Why? Because of the persecution that they experienced under the Muslims for hundreds of years, the Muslims would tattoo them with, with crosses so that when they would greet someone, when they would just do a simple handshake, they would immediately see, oh, this person's a Christian. I'm not doing business with them. I'm not going to associate with them. Now, Egyptian Christians do it to, as an homage to the martyrs that came before them. And now they, they tattoo themselves in a physical way to say, my allegiance is to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. And so you, you might see that. And so I think that the mark of the beast, first of all, is an inside thing. It's a spiritual mindset, but it might have an outward mark. It, and in the case of Egyptian Christians, they are proactively putting a mark on themselves to say, I belong to Jesus. I don't know if we're living in the last days. I mean, I've been reading some things about ancient Christians. They thought they were living in the last days. Christians in the early 700s thought they were living in the last days. My grandparents living through World War II thought they were living in the last days. I don't know if we're living in the last days. I am not prepared to say that. But what I do think is helpful to know is that Christians have been persecuted for their faith as long as there's been a church. It may have changed globally. It may not have always been here, but other places. And maybe now it's coming here. But Christians have always been persecuted. Christians have, there's been places in the world where we have always been made into second-class citizens. And some have had to die for their faith. That is not necessarily a sign of the end times. It's just hard for us because it's coming here. But if you talk to somebody, for example, going back to my Egyptian example, if you talk to an Egyptian Christian, they will tell you that their church has been under persecution for over a thousand years. It's a way of life for them and it has impacted and shaped their souls. So it, I don't think that it is necessarily helpful to think that, oh, these things are happening because it's the end. It might be the end or it might just be that the world is shifting and our country is now moving into a posture of becoming less Christian or hostile to Christians. But we as Christian parents are going to have to make as part of our parenting strategies with our kids to understand that there is a cost to being a Christian. Being a Christian is going to cost you something. And when I talk to you about Jesus and asking Jesus in your heart, I'm not asking you to pray a simple prayer. I'm inviting you to switch allegiances 
or to have your allegiance in Jesus, that you are trusting in him first to provide for your needs. I think that we as Christians must be sober minded enough to not think that just because this is coming here, it's the end times. It may just be that it's just coming here. Now, maybe it's the end times. I don't know. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the daughter of a prophet. But I think that there are timeless truths here for us to contemplate and to be talking to our children about that serving Jesus is going to cost you something. Rebecca, what is your opinion on the rapture and whether the bride of Christ will be kept from these things by being taken away before the man of lawlessness? Okay, so I answered this on the show a couple of weeks ago. I had some angry people. <laughs> I'm just going to say my same view and then I can get more angry letters. I am a rapture skeptic. <laughs> I am I am skeptical. Um, it may be true that there will be a silent rapture. So let me explain what that is. The rapture is this idea of the silent taking away of the church. Suddenly, you know, two people are out in the field. Suddenly there's only one. It's a snatching up and it's a silent snatching up. Okay. The coming of Christ is what I think is described in the book of Revelation where Christ comes, it's visible, the whole world sees him, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. I completely affirm the second coming. That is universally the historic Christian position. If you go to the Apostles' Creed, the, one of the more ancient creeds of our faith, summaries, summary statements, it's that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I 100% affirm the second coming. I am not as convinced about the rapture because this, this idea of the silent snatching up is a fairly new idea. It, it came about in the mid 1800s. I am a skeptic when it comes to ideas that didn't exist in the ancient church. Now, there could be a rapture. I could be totally wrong. It could happen. I'm totally okay with that. I'm just saying I don't see enough biblical evidence. Now, are there verses that they point to? Yes, there are. I'm familiar with them. You don't need to send them to me. I know what they are. I've studied them. I'm just not convinced that they're saying what the rapture people say that they're saying. Just an opinion. Not going to die for it. What I can say more on the, the, the more secure side is that Christians will be spared the wrath of God. We will not receive the cup of his wrath. That much is clear to me. But will we avoid persecution? Will we avoid being martyred for our faith? I think that we ought to be prepared to die for our faith. And if you are not prepared or you're not preparing your children to know how to count the cost of what it means to be a Christian, then you're not giving them the whole picture. Because... Dying for our faith has been part of our faith since Acts chapter six, since the martyrdom of Stephen. And so we have to be sober minded about these things, but we can't be so arrogant as to think, well, just because it's coming to America, now it's the end times. I, I just, I'm not prepared to say that. I believe it will be physical in some sense, only because it says that who who receives it will enable them to buy. And I think that that is a persuasive part of it, 
even in the midst of all the symbolism, I do think it's quite possible that the mark of the beast could have a physical manifestation. What that is, though, I don't know. And I'm not prepared to say exactly what it is. But the primary thing I want us to draw our attention to is the heart. And what are we trusting in? Who are we treating as God? Are we calling Jesus God? Are we treating the state as God and controlling our movements? And, and or are we trusting in the Lord to provide for all of our needs? So that's a big one. I do think that Christians can know the signs of the time. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew, we're seeing things as in the day of Noah. That's true. And, and we should look. I don't think we should be apathetic toward reading the times, but I also want to be circumspect and keep the main thing, the main thing. And sometimes we can get so hooked up into trying to read and interpret the times that we forget the main thing is about living a holy life, understanding who our allegiance belongs to, being prepared to be martyrs for our faith, and that all of those things are not new. They are not new. They have been the, the parts of the church for as long as the church has been the church, but they are new for us as Americans. And we're going to have to start to learn from Christians in other parts of the world who have endured persecution in ways that we haven't yet endured, but we need to start thinking about it and having these discussions, not panicking necessarily yet about IDs and vaccines and all of these things. Let's try to keep the main thing, the main thing first. Okay. And then we can have some circumspect discussion about how that works out in, in, in our lives and the government and the real world. I want to bring us back to where we started uh, the live stream with the book of revelation. And I, I said at the beginning about what is the purpose of the book of revelation. And I want to really highlight the fact that it's a, it's a book of promise and comfort for the Christian. And it's a book of warning for Christians who want to backslide in their faith. If you are a Christian and your allegiance and your heart is completely for God, then make that your stand because God is going to be with you no matter what. And in the, the vision of the martyrs, I believe it's in chapter five, they're around the throne and they were beheaded for their faith. I want to encourage you that even in accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, to use American lingo, we are accepting Jesus's invitation to, to give our lives, to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple. But we can be absolutely sure that he will be with us. He will comfort us. He will guide us and he will provide for our needs and for those of our family. Trust in God more than the government and trust in God more than your fear. Trust in God's comfort and his love for you more than your fear. Don't let the fear get the best of you. Express your allegiance to him by not being fearful and by not stopping in your efforts to bring the gospel near to people. Bring the kingdom of God near. And do it just like Jesus and the apostles. 
heal the sick, cast out demons, do signs in his name, and preach the gospel with boldness and trust the Holy Spirit to show up. That is the timeless truth of the book of Revelation. And I do wish you well tonight, my brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for watching the live stream. Thanks for contributing. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks. God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.